Can you believe it? This is the 50th episode of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, where I speak with authors, journalists, essayists, and documentary filmmakers about creating works of nonfiction. Unbelievable. Thank you so much for your support. And an especially heartfelt thank you goes out to those of you who reviewed the podcast on iTunes. At this recording, there are six five-star reviews. What a gift. I can't tell you how excited that made me to see that start to tally up on iTunes. Like I said, what a gift. And you know what sort of rhymes with gift? Riff. All right, all right. I know I said last week I was through with the riff gags, including this past one that I came up with. I uh, came up with two more, so you'll have to bear with me in the following weeks. Uh, but, you know, the, the podcast continues to gain momentum, and, and that's due in part to all the sharing and reviews. So please review the podcast if you have 60 seconds and share it with all your friends who love a little nonfiction in their lives. So this milestone episode brings you Ted Conover, whose latest book, Immersion, A Writer's Guide to Going Deep by University of Chicago Press, takes the writer and shows her how to immerse herself into the lives and subcultures of those folks around her so that she may write about it later. Conover has made a career of doing this type of deep dive, whether it's riding the rails as he did for his first book, Rolling Nowhere, crossing the Mexican border as he did in Coyotes, or becoming a corrections officer as he did in New Jack to detail the lives inside our prison system. Whatever it is, he's all in. And uh, he grew up around Denver and admired how some of the older kids went on these adventures. Some even rode the rails. It got Ted thinking, you know, what would that be like? So toward the end of his time at Amherst College, he left. And in his words, to get out of the library. After all the, all the books that you've, that you've written and articles that you've written, like, at what, what triggered the uh, need or what like, itch did writing immersion scratch for you like what yeah. Was, yeah like so what was the you know the impetus behind it after doing all the work you've done to then like give this you know this wonderful handbook to people looking to employ the ta- uh, the sort of tactics that you've used for for yeah. you know 40 years so it's funny you know i did not start out to be a writer known for a particular approach um Immersion was a label applied to my work by somebody else who noticed a pattern in the ways I was approaching things. Um, And I sort of was interested, but not that interested in that pattern initially. I thought, you know, uh, that's that's cool, but I do other stuff too. And in fact, you know, I'm sure most of my work over the years has has. I guess been long form, but only immersive occasionally or in certain ways. But um, then, yeah, as after I wrote my last book of of journalism, The Roots of Man, which has these six immersive chapters, um, an editor said to me, "You know, would you ever consider writing a book about this kind of work?" Uh, uh, that would use your own experiences and experiences of people you admire to explain 
um, you know, what works and what works less well, et cetera. And I saw in that a chance to, I guess, add coherence between my writing life and my teaching life because I had approached that question in a sort of piecemeal way in different courses I've taught, but I'd never thought of assembling it into a statement about how a person might do this for a range of topics and in a way that took you from the beginning, you know, how you think of an idea to how you get access to how you comport yourself once you're inside to how you structure it, how you report for structure. And then, yeah, aftermath, I, I saw the chance to sort of make sense of that in a coherent point A to point Z way. And I thought, uh, that actually might be enjoyable. And, and it was, it was a really fun book to write. It also seemed like, yeah, that's actually, if I'm ever going to do a book about writing, that this is it. Let's just say I felt I had I, the authority to do it, right? Yeah, I thought, yeah, course. at this point, I guess I, I'm, I am qualified to write this book, and I, uh, I will. So, yeah. I think what I especially loved about it was that even though you, you do talk about writing towards, towards the end of it, I, I, I love that it's really like a handbook for the the process of of doing the type of experiential, experimental, and reporting experience. You know, the writing comes later, but it's like I like that it's more of a handbook to like get get the information and then process Good, it no. later. Yeah, I and thanks for noticing that. It's so funny. I'm, you know, I, I teach at writers conferences. I, I enjoy them. It's really fun to work with pros to make it better. But so often when I'm only with somebody for a couple of weeks, like at Breadloaf or something, I think we should have had this conversation a year ago before you sat down to write, because the research you do is, determinative, right? It defines what you're going to be able to write in many ways. And that's not true with fiction, but but with nonfiction, it absolutely is. We And if we're writing about experience, there's a lot of thinking that can go into figuring out what kind of experience could be helpful and how to get it, how to have that experience. And so, yeah, that... Um, to me was the part that other books hadn't attended to was the reporting piece and the access part and the taking notes. It's so basic. It almost seems like it's like people think I'm going to be telling them about my shorthand or something. But in fact, it's, it's this deeply important part of producing good long form nonfiction. And um, so, yeah, I felt there was a gap there too. And so as you get to, to Amherst and then you're, you're contemplating riding, riding the rails, um, not necessarily as a, as as you write an immersion, 
you uh you know you didn't necessarily know what it meant to write a book you didn't even know if you you could but there was an experience you wanted to have nonetheless so sort of like take us to that to that moment leading up to when you were thinking about taking that on as a project and uh you know what were you thinking as you were looking to take that that leap into something so uh sort of really audacious and and fun and adventurous sure well i think one thing i was thinking is how could i write a thesis and get out of the library because <laughs> you know we were not encouraged to do our own field work as undergrads in fact they said it basically wasn't allowed and and yet i thought well that's the gist of anthropology it's this idea that you can learn not just by interviewing people which i knew about from having worked as a reporter for my school papers and for some suburban papers outside denver but you know being able to live with somebody and participate in their lives could take this to the next level and i thought that was something profoundly interesting about anthropology that that non you know that journalists could learn from and that i could see uh nonfiction writers i admired trying like um you know tom wolf with uh the right stuff which is just a really entertaining ethnography of of fighter pilots in a way you know in in high school we had all read truman capote and that idea of just getting inside the minds not just of important people with titles who you talk to as a journalist but murderers i mean somebody like that it's okay to get to know them and try to explain what's in their heads that was a mind bending idea for me and no one was saying anthropology could help you with this but it just seemed kind of clear that maybe it could so yeah on the one hand i was interested in an adventure such as riding the rails might be and in staying out of the library but in on on the other hand i thought you know this is a legit subject um you could do participant observation by riding the rails you could attempt an ethnography of people who live like this and and you could do it at age 21 which i was for almost no money um and get hopefully credit for it so that was kind of my starting point um as you mentioned i you know i wasn't thinking in terms of a book then because i didn't know people who wrote books um they weren't in my circle i'd met professors who had and a couple of speakers to college who seemed to be making a living that way but it was you know i hadn't started aiming that high yet and so it wasn't until afterward when i'd had the experience i'd written my thesis and along the way i wrote an article for a student magazine i was involved with about one morning with one hobo and that got published and then it got a lot of attention and that that's when i thought wow people are interested in this um maybe this is my moment maybe i should uh see if i can interest a publisher in it as well that's great and it's so sort of elucidating that you said 
that you use the word moment because that's kind of like my my follow-up to that was like was this the moment that essentially changed the trajectory of of your life definitely it was because in fact as i prepared to graduate from college i had lined up a summer job with a newspaper called the indianapolis star which was basically the only one i could get that i was aware of and um and i was expected there in june but in may uh the associated press uh noticed my article about the one morning with the one hobo which had been reprinted in the um college magazine and and the publicity that that generated just made me think gosh um maybe i should devote my energy to to seeing if I can get a contract for a book instead of um, moving to Indianapolis. And I thought either, you know, I am shooting my my career in the foot in the most spectacular <laughs> way right now, or I'm making a decision that, that might work out. And I, I think at the end of the day, all I knew is I'd feel bad if I never tried, right? If I didn't. If I didn't see if I could um, publish a first-person account of this, and um, one thing led to another, and uh, and I did. I got a contract. I found an agent who'd grown up in Burlington, Iowa, where the Burlington Railroad began, and things just seemed to um, fall into place. So yes, that that was the beginning, and I. Um, Part of it was luck. Part of it was luck that I made. I often think, what if I'd been a little more cautious? Um, I probably would have missed out. And I I can't tell you what I'd be doing today. I hate to think about it. Yeah. It, what, because you had the the, the so maybe the courage to just get out of – as simple as it sounds, just to get out of the library – you know, it's it's a safe place to hole up and do research, but like because you had a little inkling to just get outside, it like you said, like you don't want to ruminate too much about what could have been, but that was like a defining a defining moment just to say, just to think outside of the library, if you will. I know I I like the way you put it, as though it's something admirable. To me, it showed some sort of weakness of character that I had. Um, you know, trouble concentrating in the library that long. I thought if I were a real student, I, you know, I could handle this. But yeah, I was definitely seeking alternatives to to formal education, no question. So what was the the appeal to doing this type of research and reporting that is more congruent, as you said, with ethnographies and anthropology versus like straight up journalism even though they this immersive type of stuff really has a ton of overlap there is a ton of overlap but what they have in common and what was the appeal i think is this idea of learning from experience um you know there's a little vogue in this in the um in the 60s and 70s when i was Growing up, professors would send their students out to, um, you know, a little town with twenty dollars, and and see if they could 
you know, get by for 24 hours somehow? Could they, could they make it? Could you learn by doing? And I guess I, I like the idea of experiential education. I think I've benefited hugely from formal education, from books and from lectures by smart people. But I think I've probably benefited equally by getting outside the academy and into the worlds of people who would not be so comfortable there, whether it's railroad tramps or immigrants or um, prison officers, right? That they have coherent cultures that are just sort of incompatible with, with the politeness of higher education. But, you know, I thought they had things to teach me as well. And I thought that in gaining an experience of living with them, I could, you know, not only learn something that I could write about, but I, I, it would be so cool. It would be just such, um, a great thing to have done. So it's this, I, I think it's partly this idea of what, what's a worthwhile experience? What, what do you seek out for fun? Is it, um, riding a motorcycle? Is it visiting Paris or, you know, is it this, for me, it was this kind of travel, which I think of as a kind of foreign travel. It's definitely travel outside my comfort zone and into a place that's unknown to most people like me. But on the other hand, if you've grown up with the privileges of of education and, um, you know, a family that's uh, helped get you on your way, then maybe you ought to take some chances and and poke your head into places um uh that that you don't normally or you normally wouldn't go so yeah to me that's just been its own reward even though sometimes it's unpleasant this whole idea of, of gaining experience our experience that doubles as research is to me just really cool it it also puts you almost like on the on their team as well because like as you experience it you in essence become initiated and then in that sense like you're able to gain an even greater sense of trust that you know like oh yeah he's he's kind of one of us now and you know you always you know you have to be mindful of that that distance that ultimately you're going to be writing about these people and you know with the notebook out or recorder out you're that's your signal to them be like listen like let's not mistake roles here, but by experiencing the stuff, like you are proving to them that you are of them and then you kind of gain their respect. And as a result, you can write about them more honestly with greater empathy and uh, sort of just garner a, a greater sense of com like a camaraderie that, that you can translate to the page better. So that is all true. That is um, one of the benefits of a, you know, immersive style of reporting that I like to do is that you can't spend a lot of time. Most of us can't spend a lot of time with a, a group of people without sort of starting to like them or, yeah. or to sympathize with them. And, you know, it's a problem 
with traditional reporting insofar as it, it's harder to be objective if you are a prison officer and you endure what prison officers do, you know, some people are going to say, well, you're not, you're biased. You have this partiality. I think, um, I think that the trick is you have to see that team spirit as a tool for learning about people, right? You, you want to know what makes that team work? How does that team think? Um, how does the world look to them? Who are their friends? Who are their enemies? And, and to really get that, you kind of have to be on the team for a while, even if it, it's with this idea that, okay, after three months or six months or a year, I'm going to go back to my life off the team and write about that experience. So, um, you know, you, you have to be mindful of where you stand. And I, I remember the day that I came home and told my wife about working at Sing Sing and I was saying, yeah, we had to do this. We, we had to do that. We had to put the cells on lockdown. And she said, so by we, who do, who do you mean exactly? And I said, we, the COs. And, hmm. and it, it made me realize that I was now on the team, even though at the end of the day, I'd sit down and I'd take notes about what had happened. And that's, I think a really good way to keep your your perspective and sense of fairness and remember that you're you're coming at this, you know, from the outside in a certain way and so you you need to write it down and I just think writing it down, I think taking notes is so helpful not just for remembering but for keeping your identity straight, you know, keeping a grip on who you are and, and why you're doing this and, and, um, yeah, becoming sympathetic without going native. That's a, that's a great, a great way. I never thought about the note taking, like the note taking to me always made sense. Like you need to document what's happening so you can verify everything and make, and not rely on your memory. But as like a, and I never thought of it as a way to, keep your compass calibrated right that to maintain your identity as a you know a reporter at, at, on some level like that's really interesting that it does sort of make sure it it realigns and keeps your sort of journalist guitar in tune yeah exactly and because you know after all when you take notes you're you're writing to yourself right these are notes for yourself and so who is that person um, and, and it, it's a chance to, it's funny, the great challenge of writing my first book, Rolling Nowhere, was knowing who I was writing it to. Like I'd always written for an editor at a newspaper or for a professor at a college and you know who those people are and what they want. But when it comes to writing a book, like, who is this for exactly? And um, I remember my very first editor at the Viking Press said, you know, picture a really good friend who you haven't seen in a long time um, who who wants to know exactly what you've been through for the last months and, and likes you so much they're going to listen to it. Um, and you're going to tell this person the truth, right? You're going to 
you're going to um, explain not just what happened, but how it matters, how it mattered to you. And maybe, uh, you know, this will be after dinner and a couple glasses of wine or a beer. And um, that's great advice and helped me get through my first big writer's block, which which came from not knowing who I was talking to. But I, I never really thought about it this way. But yeah, when you take your own notes about a project, that audience is is you, the writer, if that makes sense. It's like um, these are notes to the person who's going to be writing about this. And, um, and, and so you keep that identity alive. It, it's, it's the identity of me wearing <clears throat> not my gray prison uniform with all my keys hanging on my belt and my baton and my baseball cap that says corrections, but it's me and my jeans and my sweatshirt sitting at home in front of my computer, you know, with a soft drink or a coffee or something. And it's, I'm in my world and I'm writing to that future self who's going to put all this hopefully into a book. So yeah, the note taking is a big deal. And you, you write an immersion about the, the observer participant spectrum and in a, you know, the nature of the work is it can take months or or years and um but you never quite know how long um and i wonder like what's your barometer for that like do you find that you 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 end the project when you become too close to the participant or you know in the case of say like new jack you just wanted to like work for a year and um you kind of set those parameters or something so like i don't know like how, how do you gauge how long a project might be along that spectrum? So I think I do it by trying to imagine this experience on paper. And um, if the experience is the raw material, do I have enough to create a finished product? And it's funny, when I set out to ride the rails, you know, I basically just thought, okay, if I spend four months doing this, I will have had a bunch of experiences and I could probably visit most of these states and I could get home by Christmas. So I'll just aim to do it that long. But um, I wasn't consciously preparing to write a book. I, you know, I ended up writing a, a, a college thesis, which is something very different. And I hadn't done that before either. But ever since then, I've understood there's a correspondence between the research and what you're going to write. And you kind of have to say to yourself, okay, where, if this is going to be a narrative, as all my books are, where are we in the story? Um, What has happened to me so far? What have I learned? Who are my main characters and how well do I know them? And, um, I remember telling my agent about three months into, into, uh, working at Sing Sing, I said, well, I think, uh, I think I'm getting close. I think, um, yeah, I could, I could see maybe, maybe three or four more weeks, another month. And then I, I think I can quit. And she said, oh, really? Cause it was a terrible job. I couldn't wait to be done. And, um, mm-hmm. and she said, okay, so 
So um, where yeah, and we know where your book begins, and uh, who do we meet uh, along the way? And I told her, and I and she said, and how well do we get to know them? And I said, well, not that well, but I said I'm the main character. That's what matters. And she said, uh huh. And and the book ends when? And and I said, well, when I quit, obviously, with this stupid bravado. Um, <laughs> and she just looked at me like seriously, and I knew that I um, had to stay. And we had a couple more of those conversations where she basically helped me see that I didn't have all the pieces, which these pieces you can only gain through, through time. You only get to know somebody at work after weeks or months, right? And, um, and to get to know an institution as big as that prison takes months. It really does. So as I, as the months went by, I, I tried to structure the book I hoped to write and I could see where it began and I could see that this could be the middle. And that day I got punched and started feeling differently about prisoners, like really disliking some of them who I didn't even know. Uh, what you know? I thought that's an important moment in in my experience where the roughness got got the better of me, and I said that's going to be important in the book, and maybe that'll be around a midway point as I wrestle with keeping my my cool and um, my perspective, and and then yeah, it was my agent who suggested maybe you know Christmas or New Year's will provide a sense of closure and um that was really smart and once i had those under my belt and i'd seen what happens on new year's eve and realized that's a big deal in prison um where everyone's counting the days and here you are at the end of a year i thought okay now now i'm getting close to the end so the process for me involves basically filling in in my mind the chapters of a book I have yet to write. Do I have all the pieces yet? Um, can I go back to my study or do I need to stay out here in the field a while longer? You, you also write that when you were ex- going through the experiences that would eventually become rolling nowhere, you, you, uh, you sort of stumble upon what it's possibly like to be, um, like a Mexican immigrant coming coming across, and which ultimately sort of was the the tinder that led to coyotes, and um, I I wonder if you could maybe speak to this idea of like receptivity and always like keeping your antenna tuned to potential stories down down the road because that you know whenever you stumbled upon that during your experiences riding the rails, ultimately turned into a second book, and you saw like a a congruence between the hobos and the Mexican Im- immigrants and, and and so forth. So I wonder like how important is that level of receptivity that, you know, and stowing that away for possibly a future book or a future magazine article? Yeah, well, I guess it's important. I mean, it certainly <laughs> mattered to me that, um, that I started meeting these Mexican guys on freight trains, which wasn't the, picture I'd had in my mind when I started out, you know, I was thinking more about 
the grizzled uh, hobos from the Depression era. And instead, there's guys my age from Mexico who, to my surprise, you know, can understand my my Denver Public School Spanish and 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 we're both, you know, on our own. And so we can hang out. I mean, that was a revelation. And it, it took a it probably took me longer than it should have to realize these are the true modern day American hobos. Um, I guess that's important. I guess that's how a lot of writers come upon their subjects is by having some part of their brain open to new ideas and um, open to people who say things like, you really ought to meet my friend X who does Y or did you ever think of writing about Z or, you know, I just think um, the genesis of ideas is mysterious and um, occasionally my ideas come from somebody who's making a suggestion, but I think my best ideas, yeah, probably just come when a switch gets flicked in my mind and I think, oh, that's kind of cool. And yeah, I could, I could get that story. I could, I could do that. And, and if I wrote about a year of travel with Mexican immigrants, you know, I, I bet I could uh, get that published so it, it's absolutely essential and it's absolutely mysterious. I have, you know, if I could take a pill every morning <clears throat> that would guarantee I'm going to notice interesting stories that <laughs> that <laughs> are suggested by the evening news or by, by, you know, my daughter's looking at on Facebook or whatever, I would, I would, I would buy a year's supply. I think your your taste as a reader and a writer just is sort of like a natural sort of uh, inoculation to like these these ideas. Like you can see, like if you see a little hundred word blurb, you're like, oh yeah. Like you can you can almost plot out like there's more. There's like there's arc there if you were given the gift of time and the uh, yeah basically the gift of time and your own curiosity. Be like, oh yeah, that little. That yeah, you know, that little piece of police blotter. There, there's more there, and that could be right. a real interesting story. Right, and I think yeah, you just kind of have to have faith in your instincts that <clears throat> you know you're interested for a good reason, or you know, because there's a lot out there that interests us. I mean, you know, it's the the cat video lobe of the brain that we have to keep under control and <laughs> put in its proper place while we, we also uh, pay attention to, um, to other things. Right. I mean, um, channeling and sort of, um, tending to one's own impulses, one's own curiosity can be a, a big job. And, um, and then you need a council of advisors, right? You need somebody to say, Oh, that, I think that's been done or that doesn't sound like you or, um, yeah. Uh, that's such an interesting and mysterious subject to me. Yeah. 
And uh, when you were attending a, a, a party in New York City, uh, and you, you, you crossed paths with David Remnick, and uh, you know, he's, he said to you, like, oh, yeah, that's the writer who makes his living sleeping on the ground. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I was wondering, like, how did, how did you take that? When you, what was the context of that, and how did you take that? <laughs> it's funny. Um, a, I was delighted to be uh, recognized. Um, you know, for my first two books, which had involved a lot of sleeping on the ground, but <laughs> B, I was mortified because can you really sleep on the ground for your whole career? And, um, oddly it made me think of that long running TV show Gilligan's Island, which has, um, had, you know, this cast of characters who I watched for years on on TV and who I think in not only my mind, but everybody's were forever identified with this sort of, um, light comedy. And, um, you know, that's, that's Gilligan. That's, that's ginger. Um, and you, and you get typecast and, um, if you're too closely identified with one thing, I think it's a problem. So yeah, I think that was a factor in me choosing to, um, write about Aspen for my third book to see if this technique of participant observation could be used with people wealthier than, than me as well as, um, less wealthy. So it definitely had an effect. Yeah. And like, do you think there's a point or maybe there's just a way that you can I don't know, recalibrate it, if you will, like, is there an, an expiration date to this type of reporting or just maybe a certain subgenre of it like I, I imagine you right now you're the idea of riding the rails and sleeping on the floor and sleeping on the ground and crossing the mexican border is abhorrent but when you were 25 it was like yeah so i'm gonna do this so yeah well, so it's yeah yeah well here's the thing it's not abhorrent it's um <laughs> it's like <laughs> it still seems kind of cool um and uh, but I'm, yeah, I know that, you know, I'm in my late fifties now and I could still ride the rails. And in fact, a couple of summers ago I did with my son. Oh, to write that piece for outside. Yeah. He was yeah. curious about it and it was a way for me to, um, get back out there. But, um, I think really the, you know, I've thought about this. I uh, Some things would probably be harder for me to do now. And there's a chapter of my book about roads, uh, The Roots of Man, which is set in, um, in Kashmir, in northern India, in Ladakh, where I walked on a frozen river for three days with these teenagers who were getting out of their isolated valley to attend school on the outside. And I was thinking, well, at a certain point, um, you know, what is the, what is the expiration date? What, how long could I keep doing this? And I think, um, as long as, um, you're in decent shape, yeah, you can keep going, but it does, it does feel a little riskier to do certain things now. And, um, and also, you know, once you have a family, once you have kids, 
it seems a little selfish to um, be transported across the Rio Grande by members of a Mexican gang than um, than it did before you had a family. So, yeah, both I guess physical fitness and um, your your ties to people close to you affect your uh, ability to do this. But I I would. You know, a couple of my ideas for future projects are sort of like the early projects, and um, and I would do them if the various um, uh, various pieces can come together. And I, I know, uh, you know, uh, Sebastian Younger has spoken about. Uh, I, I I think he's kind of done doing the war reporting, like going into war zones. Like I've heard him yeah. say that on podcasts, and like that's kind yes. of the idea. It's like I think war correspondents and foreign correspondents, like who have been really it, like in the thick of things, like at some point, you're like it's it's time to step step away from from this and like you mm-hmm. you know you cite his work and his little passage on P- ptsd in immersion as well and he's spoken in some of your classes so i wonder you know just have you have you guys gone back and forth uh talking about this very subject huh. yeah it's funny we have um <clears throat> i admire him tremendously and uh you know i, I admire um admire writers who will put themselves out there with soldiers and and um and report from the front um um my wife and I made a bargain early in our relationship that um you know she could handle most things but but did I think I could avoid doing that kind of reporting and um after a couple of uh, false starts I figured out that I, I could, it was hard to say no a couple of times, but I did. Um, but I do think Sebastian is done with war reporting and, you know, his, um, close collaborator, Tim Hetherington, who he did Restrepo and other projects with was, was killed in Libya, as you know. And I think at a certain point, you decide um, this is taking a toll on me, and um, and I've also maybe cheated death um, enough uh, that if I kept doing it, I could expect not to at some point. And um, so, yes, you see people ease out of it um, in, and become interested in 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 a life that does not involve so much um, risk or fear. And, uh, um, you know, Chris Hedges, also a former war reporter, has has written a lot about the effects of of that kind of research. But um, Sebastian has really, uh, I think, done more than anybody else to, to talk about how trauma can mess up a a war correspondent as well. And, um, uh, I, I admire him for that. I, I think, um, you know, right. We have to take care of ourselves as writers and, and, and some of the things you see aren't, 
aren't easy. And some of those things don't leave your mind as quickly as you'd like, if at all. And, um, and, and you have to pay attention to that. And you cite a bunch, just dozens upon dozens of you know, brilliant writers in, in your book, you know, Susan Orlean, Younger, Adrian Nicola Blanc, Tracy Kidder, Maddie Blaze. And um, over the course of your career, um, what have you learned from these practitioners and other practitioners about the craft of this type of immersion reporting and the writing that comes out of it? <laughs> Wow, what have I learned? <clears throat> I guess I've learned, you know, I, I, I've tried to take lessons from, from people as you know wherever I can. Um, you know, from Susan Orlean, you you remember that um, writing doesn't have to be about war to be to be good um, to be meaningful to. Um, to transport a reader. I mean, she more than almost any of the writers I talk about in my book is a writer who, when you come across her work, you, you know, it's her, uh, if you'd forgotten to pay attention to the byline, I think, and you were perceptive, you'd figure it out within a few paragraphs that this is Susan Orlean. And, and that's, um, such an important lesson for nonfiction writers that, um, that we can have a style too, and that it's, it's, uh, consists of how we look at things and obviously in our language, but also in our, our choice of topics, um, um, uh, that things can be funny, things can be delightful and, and we should pay attention, right? Uh, Gosh, I, I'm reading a new book that isn't out yet about a writer who spent a year in a classroom for uh, recent immigrants, most of them refugees in Denver. Uh, her name's Helen Thorpe. And um, I keep getting reminded of Tracy Kidder's book, Among School Children, mm. which has the same basic idea. You know, he spent a year in this classroom, but. Um, but they're doing it in such different ways. And, um, uh, you know, Kidder has been hugely influential to me. He's, he's, um, such a master of, of long form narrative. And, um, you know, I've, I've tried to channel and soak up, uh, the way I imagine him doing his reporting sometimes, um, uh, the care with which he comes to characterize people important to him, whether it's, um, you know, Dr. Paul Farmer in Haiti and mountains beyond mountains or, um, the doctor from Burundi, uh, who he writes about in that amazing book, whose name is escaping me right now. The reason I quote those people in immersion is each of them have left me with lessons that I think made me a better writer or could make me a better writer if I could um, uh, attend to them properly and and hopefully might help other people wanting to do this too. I, I kind of think we're all in a kind of conversation with each other mm. when we write our books and I mean, that's uh, what it's all about. 
Well, I think what's especially great about Orlean and, and Kidder is that they, especially with Kidder's early work, they kind of dis- dispels the myth that uh, immersion writing has to be like this almost a foreign deep dive into war or, you know, uh, you know, crossing the Mexican border, you know, it can be something that's, you can do immersion reporting in your backyard. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And, um, and yeah, Catherine Boo as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess she's probably best known now for behind the beautiful forever is about India, but built her reputation on, on very, um, local topics familiar to to um all kinds of americans and and yeah i got started with subjects that cost me very little and that i you know often i found that working a job you know whether it's driving a taxi in aspen or or working corrections in new york is itself an interesting thing to write about but it also pays you while you're doing it, which is um, an important factor for a lot of us. A real interesting point you you, you make in the book has to do with um, with research, and you said there's there's a point too. I and I I guess it helps it helps focus focus focusing the research, and in turn like helps focus the writing later. You know, you call it like steering your research. Oh yeah. And, um, like how important is that? There's got to be a spectrum there because if you steer the research too much, you're not being receptive to to other other things that might exactly crop, that might crop up. So, like, how do you navigate those two poles between steering the research and then being open to anything that happens? Yeah, it's funny. It's connected to the question of how much do you research your topic. Say, I'm you know you're going to another country or another city, how much of an expert do you have to be on that place before you go there? Mm. And I think you need you need to do some basic research. So you've got the basic touchstones. You know important history. You know important books and other media, musicians. You, you, know, you know what's happening politically, but you don't want to overdo it because, yeah, you have to stay open to surprise and to um to the unexpected so you know i guess i i look for some kind of middle ground where i'm i'm receptive to what i find but i also i'm not going in blind and just waiting to see what happens i there's questions i want to ask um and you also find well, here's an example. You know, my first piece for The New Yorker was about a journey um, from Mombasa, Kenya, into Central Africa uh, to write about long-distance truck drivers and AIDS, which um, uh, was spreading among men and women in Africa before it was understood very well in the United States um, how that could happen. How do women get infected and in fact yeah how do straight guys get infected and um a couple of friends of mine from college had um become ill with the disease and i wanted to write something uh about it and so i pursued this story about travel with these drivers who um they're away from home for 
weeks at a time and um yes they hook up with uh waitresses and uh uh you know women serving them drinks at little lodgings along the way um but it was really hard for me to talk to those women who were clearly a big part of the story um because the truck drivers were the only translators i had um uh and so when i went back to kenya and revisited one of those drivers for my book about roads i i purposefully thought i want to i want to flesh out poor choice of words i want to explore <laughs> this other part of the story um right because i've been hanging out with men it's important to um to see the the other side of things and found this found a way to do that in in Nairobi which turned out to be really affecting because it took me so long to understand that even though these women were um were infected they were they were most of them still doing sex work uh because the their children depended on them for it and uh and that which is such a revelation and such a dilemma. And they acted like I would have some good advice for them, which I uh, really struggled with. And so, yeah, you, you also go in thinking, how can I compensate for some bias I might bring to this, say by being a man or uh, any of the other parts of my identity that might keep me from thinking about other people's situations. So that's another thing I do think about. So once you've done, you know, most most or all of your research and you're getting ready to organize your notes and get down to the writing of it, uh, what's your what's your approach to writing in, in your routine once you're looking to start to mold and craft? Uh, a narrative sort of like you know when yeah how do you how do you operate you know morning routine to to win the day so you can <laughs> stop yeah. so yeah i'll i'll just leave it at that i like that idea win the day um <laughs> i like that <laughs> because we all know how bad it feels when we've lost the day right oh, yeah. um usually <laughs> arrives with a beer around six or seven p.m and then <laughs> surrender um <laughs> But uh, I I take some time. Um, I don't think it's if if you can possibly not start writing right away. I think that's a good thing. Just let the pieces settle in your brain a little bit, and then I read back over all my notes. I see if there's any more reporting I need to do, another book I need to read, or somebody I forgot to talk to, and then and then I just try to. Think okay. Is do I have a story? Where should I begin? What'll be the high points? I do the kind of outline where, you know, I try to put things in order, and I try to make a little notation for everything that really has to be in there. Like that conversation with the sex workers in Nairobi has to be in there, and um, my conversation with the truck driver about illness has to be in that so there's stuff that you just know is really important and you have to use so i try to order it and i try to think okay if i if i'm going to talk about all these things 
and I've got X number of words, how much time can I spend on each of them? So you just try to get, it's like planting a garden or something. You're, I'm up here in New Hampshire right now, and I was actually talking to a, a neighbor yesterday who was planting her garden, and she had strings laid out in these very straight rows, and um, uh, she had seedlings she had planted months before. I mean, it was it's not like she just got out there and said, today I plant my garden. In fact, she, she'd clearly been working on it for weeks. And I think the best kind of writing will have the same kind of preparation. It, it's not like you sit down and, and, okay, today I write. Rather, you've been getting ready to write f- for a long time. And, um, and now you finally have cleared the decks and you're going to, and you're going to write, which to me means doing some every day um, uh, as consistently as you can until it's done. So I look for a block of time that doesn't have a week of um, obligation in, in the middle of it, um, right? Or some medical thing. I don't want mm-hmm. to have that happen here. I want to be able to concentrate on what I'm doing. You need to kind of clear the decks for as long as it will take if you have that luxury. You know, if you're a person who works another job as well, then you have to say, okay, I'm going to work on this the next four weekends. Um, you just you have to set out the the time so that that so that your brain knows that's what you're going to do then, and that to me is the key. So like when I go to bed the night before. A day of writing, it's somewhere in my mind. Um, some part of my brain is getting ready to write the next day. And I'm not, so it's not like I'm planning sentences or an outline in my mind. It's just maybe I just don't, I just think your mind helps you if you prepare in an or in a conscious way it will help you unconsciously get ready and in the old days i really didn't start writing until after lunch when i like my, my first three books were all written in afternoons um but as i've gotten older i've started writing earlier in the day and um but when i say a, a good day of writing i don't write all day and i don't know anybody who does um you know, if you have two or three concentrated hours of writing, and by concentrated hours, I mean hours punctuated by standing up, by stretching, by pouring another cup of coffee, by, <laughs> you know, maybe answering that text or email, but not more than one, um, and then back to it. And then maybe if you're really energetic, re- coming back to it in the afternoon, that that's a day of writing for me. And um, I, I used to start by reviewing everything I'd written the day before and making sure it was still good. And somewhere along the way, I stopped doing that. I, I pick up where I left off. I, I try to leave off at a place where I'm not stuck, but rather I've got momentum, right? So mm-hmm. I haven't quite finished writing that scene, but I know where I'm going and I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. And and that kind of helps you get off to a running start. If I'm having trouble just putting words together, I might write an email to a friend just to get 
the the wheels turning. Um, yeah, I think Hem- Hemingway used to just sometimes stop right in the middle of a sentence, uh, leaving yeah. leaving a little in the well. So you pick up. Yeah, the next I love day. that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a cool idea. And, so anyway, yeah. How do you um, how do you deal with the, those ugly middles in, in a in a draft when like the mo- early momentum and that early like honeymoon period of of the book has subsided and you, you know you got a slog. You know, it's, <laughs> how do you how do you deal with that? Because that's like an ugly part for anyone, whether it's writing essays or, or something book length. It's just sometimes it's a grind and it's not fun anymore. And it's like, ugh. I <laughs> like, know. So like, no, how, how do you approach that? We've all been there, and, and sometimes <laughs> we've been sent there by our editor or. Um, our agent or someone who says you need to make this better and it can be excruciating. Um, God, how do I deal with it? I don't know. How do any of us deal with, with torture and hardship? We, um, you know, you, you try to approach it methodically. You think, how could I just do this for an hour today? And it, an hour a day for the next two weeks and get through it and reward myself at night by seeing a movie or, you know, doing something fun. Um, I don't have a magic formula for getting through those, um, hard parts other than to acknowledge we all have them. And even, yeah, the most prolific writer who, is consistently celebrated is going to run into a morass now and then where mm-hmm. she just has to, you know, where she's going to hate her life until that's done. And then, um, and then hopefully, uh, you know, an end, an end will approach, but you know, the bigger, the bigger thing is, is to avoid, a situation like that that's too massive, right? Like mm-hmm. a getting involved in a book that's just going to have a lot of awful brush to to um, hack your way through. Um, I think you have to, you know, anything you truly dread, that should be a sign that this is um, – this is maybe not where you want to spend weeks. Um, and uh, hopefully the, this middle part you're talking about can be addressed in, you know, bef- before it before it drives us to depression or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've been doing this kind of work for, for 40 years, which when you say it out loud, it's like, holy, holy crap. It's uh, it's uh, what, what motivates you at this point after doing this for so long? Like what motivates and what keeps driving you? Oh man. Well, what, you know, what makes any of us want to meet an interesting new person? I guess there's some of us who, who are done meeting new people, but not me. And, um, I, I also, you know, think of it as my continuing education in the world. Uh, it's not it, – it's a continuing process of of discovery and figuring things out and, um, and also maybe of shining a light onto places where I think 
that I think could use it. I think that can be part of the writer's job as well. And, and Lord knows, um, there's plenty of those. And, uh, I see no reason to, um, you know, I still want to get up every day. And for me, getting up in the morning involves thinking about what I'm going to write about or, or, um, research. It's just kind of what I do and who I am in the world. So, um, so yeah, uh, I, I, I hope to have a a few more books, um, before I'm done. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, that's, uh, you know, and I deeply look forward to reading more of your work and I know you've got some, some projects in the hopper, so I can't wait to find out what those are down the road. But, uh, I appreciate, I appreciate you attending. So, uh, closely to immersion and uh it's really really fun to talk to you about this oh fantastic well thanks again thanks again ted uh for carving out this time and it's been a pleasure immersion is just you know it's so good and all your past work are just perfect illustrations of the tactics that you wrote about here so thanks for that and uh we'll be in touch down the road thanks friend and look forward to it you got it take care yep bye so long This week's program was produced by yours truly, Brendan O'Mara. Thanks very much for listening. Subscribe, share, review. And if I could leave you with one piece of advice this week, it would be this. It's the, the cat video lobe of the brain that we have to keep under control and <laughs> put in its proper place. Perfect. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.